Hello, Gimme Shelter listeners. This is Matt Levin, dad and housing reporter with Cal Matters, and I'm alone in the studio this fortnight. Some logistical issues made it difficult for myself and Liam Dillon of the LA Times to produce a typical Gimme Shelter episode. But nevertheless, we have something for you housing policy junkies to listen to. Last week, Liam moderated a panel, and it was actually good, and he did a good job on it. This was a panel hosted by the Urban Land Institute San Francisco office, and the topic was housing issues in the Bay Area. How original. But the panel had some star power, at least in terms of California mayors with something to say about the housing crisis. That includes San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff, Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg, and Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs of Universal Basic Income fame. Uh, Liam asked very pointed questions as he is known to do um, about state and local solutions to the housing crisis. Um, And then they also talk about single-family zoning and actually made some news um, with their comments on single-family zoning, which you should definitely listen for. Um, It's about an hour long, and it's good. It's good. It's not a boring panel. Also, please remember to rate and review the podcast when you have the time. It definitely helps uh, increase the popularity of the podcast and justify this thing to our bosses. We will be back in two weeks with hopefully a normal Gimme Shelter episode. And I think we have some really good guests lined up for that. So stay tuned. Um, And with that, I'll present this panel recorded last week um, by Liam and these four big city mayors in San Francisco. Hi there. I'm Liam Dillon. I'm a reporter with the Los Angeles Times. I work out of the Times uh, Sacramento Bureau and I cover housing affordability issues. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, just a note, uh, for the end, we're going to have about 15 minutes of questions, uh, uh, question cards, so folks will be going around with cards, uh, and you can write your questions, and they'll come to me at some point. So um, I, wanted to, I wanted to start uh, very broadly, and I think most of my questions will be directed to everybody, so everyone can sort of jump ball and then jump in. Um, but we've been talking about a very intense housing crisis in the Bay Area for five years, longer, maybe. Uh, and I guess I'm wondering, are things getting better or are they getting worse? <laughs> worse. Why? <laughs> um, I think we're seeing homelessness grow. I think we're seeing uh, the American dream of home ownership becoming increasingly out of reach. I think we're seeing uh, commutes grow and people not being able to spend time with their families because they're being pushed out of their communities and having to uh, become super commuters. I mean, it's just telling that you're having a forum about housing in the Bay Area and you have the mayors of Stockton and Sacramento on the panel because all of my residents now live in their cities. So (laughs) um, I, I do feel like while it has gotten worse, it has captured people's attention and that we are on the verge of getting better. And I'm happy to talk later about in Oakland, some of the things that we put in place three years ago are starting to bear fruit as we've finally seen rents stop going up. We've seen evictions decrease by about a third. So, so there is uh, some hope on the horizon, but just the simple answer to your question, I'd say it's worse. I think it's obviously getting worse, but I, if you look at the glass half full, which we all must if we're going to lead and, and help make progress here, I think what Mayor Schaaf said is very, very important. For the first time, the issue of housing, affordable housing and homelessness, is galvanizing the public. And it's galvanizing the elected officials, especially the legislature. And I can contrast my time in the legislature, which was you know, beginning in 1998, through 2014, but as late as 2014, in order to get any real funding for housing that could be considered long-term, I had to uh, legislate a a bill that would carve out some of the climate change cap-and-trade money to create a permanent source of funding for housing. Now, it was legitimate because uh, smart growth and housing along transit lines is very appropriate. But it was also a bit of an act of desperation because there was not redevelopment, there was not a housing set aside, there was not permanent source at the time. Tony Atkins um, did perfect that to a limited degree after I left, but we were struggling to get anything we could. 
And now it's five years later, and when you look at what's dominating the legislative debate and discussion, it is housing, with a lot of ideas for, uh, for financing housing as well. It used to be that transportation was the infrastructure issue that dominated the discussion in Sacramento, and now I think it's shifted to housing. That's a good thing. What they and we do with it remains to be seen. So what state and local interventions on this area do you think are working? Uh, and I think just as important, have there been some that you thought might work that haven't? Well, I'm going to jump in on the last question yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and answer this question yeah. after, after everyone else. I, I would say, um, particularly in Stockton, it's been really interesting. Um, I remember when I first joined city council in 2013, housing wasn't really something we felt was, was, was an issue um, in terms of access to affordable housing in the city of Stockton. The conversation was that, wow, we're so affordable compared to our, our friends in the Bay Area. And in the last three years, particularly, it's fast become public issue number one. Um, just last year, Stockton had the fastest rising rent market in this nation um, for two quarters because of our, our location between Sacramento um, in, in the Bay Area. So it's definitely becoming um, an, an issue that we probably should have been planning for five, six, seven, eight, um, nine, nine, ten years ago. And I think for me, to your point, Mayor Steinberg, um, about the glass being half empty, uh, half full, excuse me, is that the, these, the, the issues we're having aren't inevitable. Um, there are issues as a direct result of policy choices we made, especially around who deserves to live in what communities. Uh, we're talking about density, we're talking about affordable housing. For so long, that was such a boogeyman. Like no one wanted affordable housing in their neighborhood. Uh, particularly in towns like Stockton, single family housing was the way to go. Like condominiums, apartments, all those things were, were, were taboo. So I think now we're reckoning with years and years and years and years of government decisions in terms of policies and, and planning zoning decisions that have created the crisis we have today. But I think because of that, it's exciting because we have the agency and the opportunity and some of the tools, as you'll hear later in this panel, to actually do something um, um, about it. But, but I think, for me, it's really hard. Um, and the last thing I'll say, I was, on a, I was in a meeting with a woman who give, goes out and helps homeless individuals in our community. She gives feminine projects to, to, to women who happen to be homeless in our community. And we scheduled a meeting a month ago when we met this, this Monday. She told me she had just been evicted. Um, because her rent had risen um, $300 over the course of the year. Um, and I think that's just a sad commentary of where we are now, and also a charge for action that this woman who spends all her time helping individuals who are homeless is now currently homeless um, um, in the city, not because she wanted to be homeless, not because she chose to be homeless, but because the way our inventory, our vacancy rates, and, and, and the way rents are rising, that she's unable um, to, to afford housing um, in her community. Yeah, so what, I might yeah, just add, yeah. I totally agree, this is, uh, it's only gotten worse. Uh, I, I think that the character of our cities is fundamentally changing as a result of this crisis. And I think that is uh, what I think makes it so tied up in the very identity uh, of our communities and that has mobilized so many people. Um, you know, I think Daryl's right that we are finally starting to see the public and the legislative branch along with mayors uh, getting behind an awful lot of change, but we still have a lot more work to do in that regard, and we know there's a lot of forces still politically against the kind of change that we need. Um, and I think the good news is there's a lot of innovation happening in all of our cities and in others as well, and we're constantly trading ideas about what's working and what's not. And I think ultimately we're gonna see you know, the laboratories of these cities providing the solutions, but this is gonna be hard work in the meantime. So to the, to the question about what's working and what's not, um, who wants to weigh in? I'll, I'll jump in on that. Um, I think one of the things that is working is not um, deceiving yourself that only one thing will work. <laughs> um, and certainly, uh, you know, our experience of being on the steering committee of CASA, uh, hopefully if you've been here all day, you know what CASA is. Does anyone not know what CASA <laughs> is? Good. Um, because it's, you know, I think we grow tired sometimes of the advocacy that goes on. Um, you know, the developers are like, build, 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 and the activists are like, protect the tenants, protect the tenants, and for God's sakes, we've got to do both. Uh, and we have to not just build new housing, we also have to figure out how to take the existing housing stock we have to make it more affordable, to densify it within its existing envelope, whether that's through ADUs or changing zoning so people can more easily convert to 
duplexes or triplexes. We've got to do all of it to actually have an impact. Um, the thing that I would say is not working so well is um, regionalism, uh, and it should be working better. And, and it gets all down to this kind of um, vilification of the other. And whether that's um, that we're afraid of having a, a homeless uh, navigation center in our neighborhood, or we're afraid of having high-density renter housing in our neighborhood, uh, or it's, we're afraid of having SB 50 and higher-density zoning near our transit corridors in our cities. Um, this idea that somehow it's somebody else's problem to solve and it doesn't impact you, whether that's you as an individual or you as a municipality, is really wrong-headed thinking. Okay. And, and just, you know, the, the, and Daryl, you've been awesome on this mm -hmm. issue, local control is this new rallying cry. Why don't we have a rallying cry of regional responsibility? I would like to pick up on that, if I may, for a minute. That, that deserves an applause line. I think we have to be honest with each other that we as a society lack clarity when it comes to what we want and need, and that we rationalize why sometimes we don't get there. Look it. Governor Newsom has said we need to build or adapt or find three and a half million dollars of additional units over the course of the term. That is audacious and it's aspirational and that's what a governor should do. So then I ask if that is our singular goal and people are suffering greatly because we're not even close to that goal in terms of homelessness, in terms of housing insecurity, in terms of housing quality, why is it that Scott Wiener's SB 50 is controversial in the first place? Now, I know there's an answer to that question, but why is it that some counties are carved out as the bill moves its way through <laughs> the amendment process? Libby is correct. Now, so I've treaded back and forth between the state and local government, and I swear to God my personality has not changed every time I've crossed <laughs> over, nor my values, nor... But we lack clarity. Because we say we want to solve the housing crisis and increase production, but we're not so singly focused on it, which we should be, that we are willing to actually confront some of the obstacles and reasons why it's more difficult to get there. And local control is a perfect one. And as a mayor, I've said this a lot, I believe in the concept of local control in terms of the state not telling cities or counties how to actually do things. But I am not for local control if it means the city gets to say, we're not going to do something that is essential to meeting a major societal need, like building more housing. The words local control are not found in the five books of Moses. <laughs> it's not, it, it's, it's a value, but it's, <laughs> it's balanced against other values. And so clarity, is vital. If we're going to increase production dramatically, then we have to recognize the trade-offs and we need to go after it like we mean it. And what's fascinating about this idea of local control is that historically it's generally been used for what I would argue are anti-democratic and anti-equitable principles. Mm -hmm. um, local control was used for things around school desegregation. Um, then and now residential segregation and, and, and keeping people out. So every time I hear local control, I'm always a little bit like, oh, are, we, are we really talking about local control? Are we really talking about keeping some undesirables out, some people who are changing the character of our neighborhoods and towns out when they are actually the very fi fabric, I would argue, in the folks that make our communities um, grow and thrive? Mayor Chef, I want to, uh, and I'll, uh, yeah, but I just want to push on one thing before I forget. You, you said what was working was CASA, which is a regional effort, and then you said something that wasn't working was regionalism. And so help me, help, help us understand kind of what, what I said yeah. um, about CASA that yeah. I thought worked was that it's not just, we're not waiting for one silver bullet, that it's a menu of things that we have to do. It's not just build, it's not just protect tenants, it is both. And so both sides have to get over their aversion to the other because we need both of those things to actually make a dent in the problem. 
Yeah, I think that word protect is an important one because it's used by so many folks in so many contexts around housing, and it's really about status quo, uh, whether it's protecting local control, uh, which I think is killing us right now, uh, or for that matter, even tenant protections. I, I don't think we're seeing great solutions just from tenant protections. We looked at evictions in the city of San Jose, and 96% of them are for failure to pay rent. You know, folks, fundamentally, this is about an economic division that is growing in our society. It's, you know, just enacting more laws to maintain status quo is not gonna do it. Uh, on the other hand, I, I think that interventions, you know, some of the interventions we're seeing that are most effective may not have much to do with housing. For example, on the homelessness front, and I know this is true in your city as well, Libby, uh, you know, we've seen with uh, prevention measures by investing last year with 540 families that we, we, we started with on a pilot, investing about $3,900 per family, families that were on the verge of being evicted, we were able to maintain 97% of them uh, in their homes. Now, thereby certainly avoiding a lot of human misery, but also avoiding a much more expensive problem for the public when they're actually out on the street. So we, we recognize this is a housing problem, but obviously it's much deeper than that. It's an economic one, That's and true. it's not gonna get any easier as long as this division gets deeper. Um, there's been a lot of money approved at the, comparatively at least, um, approved to the years past at the state level and in some localities to help build uh, new affordable housing. Um, that also at the same time, there's been uh, a lot of cost increases on how much it, builds, it costs to build per, per unit. And I'm wondering what effect you're seeing uh, in your communities about trying to spend that money to get the most, um, most quality housing. Oh, but let's built. be clear, whatever just got approved is, does not replace right. redevelopment, right. not even close. So. Yeah. yeah, and there's so not going to be enough public money. To sure, sure, solve sure. Yes, but but there's a lot more money than there was five years ago. Yeah, all for true. This. Yeah. So we love it, uh, and we want more. Uh, <laughs> we're we're going to demand more, and Daryl's going to get us more, right, Daryl? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I'm your man. <laughs> but you know, we really have to think differently about this. We need to embrace innovation and in construction because in my city, it's maybe six hundred fifty thousand dollars a unit. Uh, we're not going to solve this crisis, $650,000 a time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've got 45,000 families in our county who needs, need extremely low-income housing. So now we're talking about tens of billions of dollars that we know we don't have. So you know, certainly it's the modular and prefabricated kinds of construction. Uh, we're looking at cross-laminated timber. Uh, we're utilizing, uh, you know, you know, realizing motels and, 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 and revitalizing them as, as apartments. Um, we are trying everything imaginable. We're going to have the largest co-living project in the country, hopefully break ground in a few weeks. It's basically a, a way to get a lot more people, about three times as many beds, into a, in an apartment building uh, and provide sort of communal amenities. We've got to try everything we can to be able to reduce this cost structure because at this level of cost, we can't possibly make progress. And they say time is money, of course, too. And we have to acknowledge the regulatory hurdles that exist when good developers, nonprofit developers, want to build innovative products. And there's a very interesting conversation going on right now in Sacramento between, and it's been public, I think the LA Times has written about it, between the builders, the building trades, uh, the environmental community, and other stakeholders. And the idea is, how do we keep the best parts of the environmental quality law, at the same time allow environmentally friendly infill projects to be expedited? We know that the building trades at times have, have used the CEQA law sometimes to stop projects that they don't like. So what is the solution? The solution could be that if a developer is willing to opt into a a fair wage scale, a residential wage scale based upon uh, ge geography, that that project and that developer, if it's an environmentally friendly housing project, would get a different process that would allow them to save the time and thus the money to, to, to build more. That's the kind of, we need strange bedfellow kinds of uh, compromises here between parties that maybe have been on different sides of these issues for a long time 
if we're going to make breakthroughs. And, and I mean, just to pick up the altitude on that, I mean, the Bay Area has been adding 11 new jobs for every one unit of housing that it has built for years now. And, and just the nature of how housing gets built and transportation infrastructure gets built, it's just not as fast a process, CEQA or no CEQA, as the, the movement of the economy. And so, you know, one of my favorite examples is Cupertino uh, opened <laughs> the new Apple uh, headquarters with, I think, 12,000 new workers. That same year, the city approved permits for only 27 new units of housing. And, and zero over the prior five years, <laughs> zero. <laughs> wow. Um, and so it, this, this question about where, where does the employment calculation fit in, is that for the city to regulate that jobs housing balance? Is it for the employers um, to start maybe providing low cost capital, not gifts, but actually just low cost capital to build workforce housing? I think these are some of the big questions that we need to answer in addition to figuring out how we can speed up the, the nimbleness of our infrastructure to flex with our economy. And, and just to build on that, a couple things I'm, I'm really excited about is one, the new executive order from the governor around using state lands and, and fast tracking mm -hmm. that to build affordable housing. And then the second thing is Kaiser's housing accelerator. We're looking at a lot of the technologies you mentioned and figuring out how do you build something faster, quicker, 3D and cheaper. 3D printed houses. <laughs> and then really other 3D. cool, cool, 3D printed houses. Out of, out of hemp. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, no so cannabis. To this question, in the first question, <laughs> I, I think there's, there are things on the horizon, but to all the mayor's points, it just seems like the scope of the challenge and the magnitude of the challenge and how much work hasn't been done up to this point necessitates even more and probably more expensive and also more bolder um, um, action, but I would also say it's not just on the mayors up here to do that. That a lot of this is driven by kind of the constituents, the community. I know many of you in this room are advocates or do this work every day, but there's a lot of people who are having the same conversation but saying, no, we don't want affordable housing, or no, we don't want to densify, or no, we don't want to build, and there's whole communities that are saying no, and I think we have to find ways collectively, as politicians, but also as the public, to really kind of push the envelope and to Mayor Steinberg's point, really center this on our values. If we are the golden state, if we are the side of resistance, people, particularly working class people, should be able to afford to live in, 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 in the golden, you can't be a progressive state if poor people or working class people, or even now middle class people can afford um, to live there. And that's just not a mayor question, but that's a California um, values question. I think it's on all of us. And, and just to throw one more solution, I, I think, you know, I, I agree, wholeheartedly with Daryl's concern about CEQA and how some folks are, are abusing it at the same time. You know, we're seeing some trades like the Carpenters are coming out in the Bay Area and, and really leading the way in prefabricated plants mm -hmm. and, and ensuring that we can have a workforce that's well paid uh, and still reducing construction costs because of a different approach. And so, you know, I, I think there's opportunities for all these stakeholders to come together and you know, I wholeheartedly agree. We, we need a path through sequel because it's killing us right now. So I want to direct the next question to Mayor Steinberg and Mayor Tubbs and Mayor Schiff. Actually, you stole my thunder on this one because uh, I was going to ask, you know, why are you here? Um, but, but I, <laughs> I but was I, invited. Right. But, but, but I, think, uh, I think a less flippant way to, to get at this question is, is tell us about uh, how uh, housing issues in San Francisco, in San Jose, in Oakland affect your communities. Go first, or you want me to do I just talked, but I'll do it again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think, and Mayor Schaaf did mention it, but because of the way displacement and things work, as things get more expensive, in the, especially because the median household income in Stockton is $45,000, mm. um, which is about 15000 20000 lower than the state. Mm. Uh, medium income, which to your point, Mayor Licardo, it's really a, not just a question of housing, but how does housing fit in, in a whole economic structure that's yeah. not working for, for a lot of people. So because of that, as people have been displaced from Oakland, San Francisco, San Jose, they see Sacramento and Stockton and say, oh wow, I could get a four bedroom house for $400,000 on the lake. Or I could get an apartment for $1,000 a month or $1,200 or $1,300 in, in downtown. And, and, and that makes it attractive. So. It's affordable for people who live in 
in the Bay Area, and, and that's why Stockton also has, the, in, the, in the nation, the highest number, our county has the highest number of people who are super commuters, people who spend four hours or more of their day in their car uh, to get to and from work. Um, and so that's created pressures on our market because we haven't built enough <laughs> all the houses to keep up with demand. So now folks who have lived in Stockton are used to for apartments costing $900, $950, dollars $1, that, that really being um, where the market is now. So we're seeing an increase in homelessness. So over the last three years, our continuum of care is the highest per capita of urban CLCs in this country mm. um, in terms of number of individuals who are homeless. And all these folks who are homeless, some have um, mental illness, but some of them just can't afford rent. Um, in terms of the average, the median income in Stockton and what it costs to, 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 to pay a median rent, at least 50%, like there's a bunch of folks in my city who, who can't afford it. Um, so now we're, we're, we're in knee deep in discussion between our developer friends, our activist friends and others to figure out sort of how do we create a Stockton that works for everyone? Like how do we make sure you make your money but not at the expense of people not being able to make life, like not having, having to live outside? How do we make sure that, that we build all types of housing and make it quick and easy, but how do, you, how do you also make sure that you're building housing that's affordable for people who live in Stockton, people whose household's income is $45,000 a year, because that's a different product than people who make 65, 70, 80,000. So it's, 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 it's made housing, again, the number one issue um, in this city of Stockton, but I would also say what's, what makes it difficult is because Stockton's close to the Bay Area, but we're also close to, we're in the Central Valley, we're also close to some of the more conservative or rural-leaning communities, which means the ideology is alive and well. So the conversation we're having about affordable housing or about inclusionary zoning or about rent caps are, are in an environment where, where folks are, 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 aren't super liberal on, on, on every issue or even most issues and when folks are actually distrustful of government and government regulation and, and for example the city doesn't have a housing trust so so this year we're gonna have a fight about how we allocate money for a housing trust to make things pencil out um so so thank you bay area for creating all these interesting <laughs> problems um so, for me to for me to work on welcome so so, <laughs> <laughs> so sacramento is in the midst of a great renaissance. It's really an exciting time. Uh, we are becoming known for more than being just a capital city and a government town. We're diversifying our economy. We have a lot of people moving up from the Bay Area. We're attracting a lot of innovation and technology and, and uh, we located our first Fortune 100 uh, headquarters, Centene in Sacramento, we're gonna get Major League Soccer, we're developing the waterfront, there's a lot of great things happening. It's been a millennial city where young people are, are moving up. The single biggest threat to this renaissance is housing and homelessness, without question. Because we run the risk, just as the Bay Area ran the risk and it was living with it, we run the risk of gentrifying if we are not conscious and we act now to do something real about it. We passed a sales tax measure in November that was a general tax because that's the only way you can get a majority vote. And I campaigned to use the money to create an affordable housing trust fund and to invest in neighborhoods and what I call economic equity and inclusive economic development to address systemic and generational poverty. Small ambition. <laughs> we won 57% of the vote, and now, of course, the city Pac-Man, as I like to call it, the general operations of the city and our employees, who are all deserving, especially our public safety employees, they, they will eat up every penny of the money if we don't set it aside. And it's a big fight now about our values and about whether or not a city is responsible just for investing in its police fire and picking up the garbage on time, being a little, uh, overstating a little bit, or whether or not our mission, core mission, is in part to invest in our people and invest in our communities. And that includes, and not just includes, that means as a lead uh, imperative, ensuring that people can live in our community and afford to live in our community. So we're living it right now and it's an exciting and perilous time. 
And in part, it's because of the migration from the Bay Area. We like the good part of it. We love the jobs and we love the industry and we love attracting more people to our city, but it also means we have a greater responsibility to ensure that people who live in Sacramento of all incomes are not priced out. And I would just add to that, we love the fact that people are, are moving to Stockton. We just want the jobs to move just as quickly. <laughs> Give us both, so we'll be all right. No, we're getting the jobs, but it's the housing. <laughs> I get the people. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with this question. We'll start with Mayor Steinberg, um, but I, I want everyone to, to weigh in. So um, you've been deputized, uh, Mayor Steinberg, by the governor as his uh, homeless person. Um, and uh, you guys know what I meant, right? Uh, and so um, He's chief, of, chief of Who policy. Who wears nice sports jackets. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm wondering, so obviously you have a close relationship with the governor, um, and, and I'm wondering um, how you think the state-local relationship has changed on this issue under him compared to the previous governor. Well, the previous governor, who I worked with, uh, negotiated many budgets, I think was a great and historic governor for California, Jerry Brown. But these were not his sets of issues. Let's be honest and clear about it. He thought it... I don't know what he thought. He thought it was a morass, and he thought it was expensive, and, and yet now we have Governor Newsom, who by temperament and also by experience as the former mayor of San Francisco. Oh, Jerry Brown was the mayor of Oakland. He was. But I guess he just wasn't paying enough attention. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but Gavin Newsom Different. has highlighted housing and homelessness as his signature issues among... Actually, oh, oh, homelessness was not an issue in Oakland when Jerry was the mayor, in all fairness. Well, there it you really go. Wasn't. It's changed a lot. So it's better because we now have a real partner where we were just talking about the May revision. A billion dollars for homelessness. Last year under Governor Brown, we, it, was, it was good, but we pushed $150 million directly to cities. This year it's going to be at least 275, maybe may higher, and it's nice to be not having to push so hard uh, up the slope to get those well, resources. Daryl is not tooting his own horn enough because uh, I believe last year is the first time the state has ever allocated money directly to cities to address homelessness. Yeah. Right. It has always gone to counties, to continuums of care, who have more of a mental health, um, public health approach, whereas in cities we're dealing with it right on our streets and we're held accountable. <laughs> and so that's what was so unprecedented. And then this year's May Revise that came out yesterday, this governor doubled the amount that is going directly to cities, and that is because of Daryl Steinberg. You know, it's all of us. It is all of us. We're four of the big city mayors of the 13. Yes, Stockton's a big city. Stockton is a big city. <laughs> Officially, we, we, we admitted him this year. Tubs. But and believe just me, it, it is not me. It was a, a powerful coalition um, who did their, we did our advocacy very effectively. And it's going to be, it's millions of dollars to cities. And we need it. We're putting it to use, not for long-term plans, by the way, but to actually build low barrier triage navigation centers to get people off the streets, which is obviously the most important and, and uh, par part of this crisis in terms of human need. Anyone else in the evolving state-local relationship under Governor Newsom? Uh, you know, I, I think the, the great thing that's happening, I go back to the experimentation that's happening in each city is, uh, you know, if we have some resources, as we're starting now to see from the state, enables each of us be able to try new ideas to tackle this seemingly intractable challenge of homelessness. And, you know, we're still in navigation center ideas from San Francisco, and uh, we're still in uh, prevention uh, programs from Oakland, and, and they're still in tiny homes from us. That, that's what needs to happen for us to really find a solution. Uh, you need, certainly, leadership at the state level to be able to provide resources, uh, but mayors are going to find solutions if you just give us a path. Uh, so I'm glad you all mentioned the May revise that came out yesterday of the budget. Um, there was one area in, in this space where the governor uh, backed away a little bit. Um, he had talked in January about getting uh, contributions from Silicon Valley companies, $500 million to help uh, spur uh, middle income development. 
Um, and I'm wondering, um, with that as sort of a framework, to what extent do you feel uh, there should be, given that a lot of these companies are generating significant numbers of jobs that, that, are, that, are, that are driving some of these pressures, to what extent should they be involved, uh, say, more than they are in looking at uh, solutions? Uh, well, I'm going to look at my staff. I'm going to get in trouble, but it's, the tr it's how I feel. Uh, well, Uber just went public today at $84 billion um, valuation great for them, $40.27 a share um, today. And, and, but I also understand that, that charity is injustice, right? So I think it would be nice if folks would give money um, to build housing for their workers, but if history is any precedent, that doesn't happen. It doesn't just happen unless folks are forced and regulated to. So I think in his state of the state address, he mentioned like a data tax or, or a data dividend. I think we do need to look at sort of Folks are creating value using our public roads, using public infrastructure. Um, how can they give back? Um, and, and not in a punitive way, but in a way that's good for them in their bottom line. If your employees live closer to work, they're more productive, they're more efficient, there's less um, pollution in the air. So, so, so I, I don't think we should ask Uber to please give us $500 million to build housing that is needed from, from or, or Facebook or anyone. I think there should be some sort of regulatory framework that makes that like an inclusionary zoning for, for these big companies that are bringing thousands of jobs. I'm Linkage. All in. Yeah, and I agree with that. And, but there's also the carrot side. And one of the ideas that got discussed when we were all up in Sacramento was could, for example, the state provide a backstop or kind of a guarantee for companies that wanted to provide low interest capital for workforce development, but needed to have some sort of liquidity guarantee. So that's, you know, we don't want to just look at sticks, although I'm willing to get out the stick too. I'm with you, Tubbs. No, but I think um, your idea is great too, I'm <laughs> but, but some carrots are really important Both as in. well. So I'd like to express a regret for something I did in the legislature, just to make this interesting. I'm true confessions. I'm really thinking about this. So we did this. Um, sequa expediting bill for job creators that uh, if your project was a hundred million dollars or more you'd get litigation that could last no more than 270 days mm. it's a good bill right however um, here's what I regret Apple for example took advantage of AB 900 in Cooper it's in Cupertino, Cupertino right, right. And I, reg I regret back then at the time that we didn't say, you can only take advantage of this if you benefit and law if you are responsible for X units mm -hmm. of workforce and affordable housing. And I yeah. think lesson for myself, but for all of us is linkage. It, you know, linkage. a stick does not have to be a hard stick, yeah. but it can be a hard carrot. In other words, I like that. I'm using <laughs> right. That's good. What what That's is wrong? Good. I mean, so Governor Newsom is Governor That's Newsom good. is. It's a carrot. A frozen carrot. It doesn't really hurt. It just. <laughs> but Governor Newsom has said you want more transportation dollars. You got to do your your share of housing. Yeah. And man, there's been pushback on that. But but if we're serious about this, there has to be linkage between what people want and what people need. And that is in the, what's that? What they need to do. What they need to do. Mm -hmm. And, th and that, that Cupertino example, that AB 900, the bill that I did is a reminder to me of how back then we should have taken it another dimension well, we can and amend we should it. link them. Well, it can be amended now. <laughs> it can be. I'm just not in the legislature, but. <laughs> you know, I, building on linkage, uh, a linkage fee is certainly something that uh, many cities have either implemented or considering as San Jose is. Uh, what I've advocated for is throughout the Bay Area, we need a linkage fee that is adjusted based on that jurisdiction's job housing balance. Mm. And the housing resistant cities should have a much higher linkage fee uh, and uh, housing friendly cities a lower one so that we can actually move jobs or at least incentivize the movement of jobs to where the housing is. Hopefully that will do something about our traffic mess. Uh, and force or encourage uh, some of those resistant suburbs to actually get housing built. Uh, this is something that ultimately did get through the CASA process. It has not yet been picked up in legislation, but we're talking to our friends in Sacramento and hope that it will materialize soon uh, because we've got to find a way to ensure that the, the jobs that are being created are paying their way. Those beds have to 
those heads need to go somewhere at night to sleep, and they need beds, and we need those beds to be in the communities where they're working. Uh, I'm going to ask one more question, and then we'll get to the, your audience questions. Uh, so you all have referenced already Senate Bill 50, um, the bill that would upzone around transits working its way through the legislature. Uh, I think I'm sitting with basically at least the majority of local government officials who have endorsed Senate Bill 50. We love it. Uh, yeah. So, so n not popular among local governments. And, and I guess I'm wondering, what is it? Why are you folks different on this than you think many, 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 many of your colleagues around the state? I suspect it's a big city, small city thing, mostly. Um, but LA we, and San Francisco, their city councils voted to oppose that. That's a good point. All right, yeah. take which, that back. Which yeah. the opposite yeah. of the mayors, though. Right. They went yeah. against their mayors. Yeah. Because when you're a council member, you, maybe you're arguably, arguably the mayor of a small city, of a small town, right? It, it's mm. be, Scott Wiener, the bill is one, one very important vehicle that calls the question in California. It calls the question. Do we want more production, especially uh, housing that is consistent with our climate change imperative, or do we not? If you're against, I know there are reasons to be against it. I'm not saying that there isn't another side to it, but I, I think it, the bill, the, the bill provides clarity to me because it says that not in not every instance does, should local control win the day. Well, and when you think about transportation infrastructure, rarely has it been built with just local dollars. The amount of regional, state, federal funds that go point. into major transportation yeah. is, is an asset that is larger than your immediate community. And so this should be part of your, remember, regional responsibility. It doesn't sound as sexy as local control, <laughs> but it should be the rallying cry. Right. And I like hard carrots, a new term I know. And selfishly, I think this is a hard carrot to get some of my friends in other locales <laughs> to build more so that less people are, are moving, causing risk to rise in Stockton. So that's one of my motivations for being an enthusiastic supporter of SB 50. Uh, really interesting audience question. Um, and this is a real good jump ball. Uh, would any of you be willing to give up your day job as mayor for a more regional governing body? No way. <laughs> What's a regional Not a government? Chance. What does it mean? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, Olivia and I sit on the on MTC, MTC together. Yeah. Uh, we watch poor Therese. No. Yeah, we, <laughs> we suffer through some of those conversations. And, you know, look, there's no better job in government than being a big city mayor. You can actually get things done in real time within your term, within your lifetime. That's a good thing. I've got friends in the legislature still beating their heads against the wall, against the army of, of lobbyists and parties and everything else. Not Daryl, of course, but you know, it is regional government is really hard because as diverse as our own cities are, um, you know, there's just not an enormous amount in common between Hillsborough and San Jose, and we can't imagine or assume that we're going to get anything done regionally by consensus. It absolutely cannot happen. Uh, we've we, we've got to accept the fact that there's going to be some dissenting voices and still move forward if we really think this is the greatest crisis of our generation, and it is. And it comes with tremendous responsibility and almost no authority. Those jobs. Uh, I believe this is directed to Mayor Sheff. You, you said in Oakland evictions were down by a third? Yes, 33%. So what do you, so what do you attribute to that? Um, well, you know, there are lots of different ways to look at the data and just to be um, wonkish and clear. Uh, we, we've had like a 30% reduction in the filings of notices with the city of Oakland. We've seen a 33% reduction in actual unlawful detainers filed with the court. Those are our two sources of data. Neither of them is perfect, but the fact that they're pretty well aligned suggests that that is probably a fair assumption. Some people would say that so many people have already been evicted, <laughs> that evictions are going down. Um, but others would say that the fact that we've really invested in more tenant counseling, we've strengthened um, and expanded the coverage of just cause eviction protections, um, owner move-in rules, uh, relocation fees, we've, we've done a lot to try and disincentivize both the um, illegal raising of rents, because Oakland is uh, a rent-controlled city, as well as um, unjust evictions without cause. And then I'd like to think, Oakland is building. 
When I became the mayor, there was not a single construction crane in the air. We now have more construction cranes up than San Francisco. We built more units of housing last year than San Francisco did. We're expected to again. Um, our and I celebrate that. Um, you know, we launched our kind of, we call it our 17K, 17K plan. Jerry had 10K, I had had 17K. Um, three years ago, and during those three years, we've literally increased housing productions seven times. Seven times. That's a 700% increase um, of what we've done in the past. Now, not as much of that is, is, is protected affordable as I would like, but every new unit of housing relieves displacement pressure. And I try and say that to advocates over and over again. Wealthy people are moving to Oakland and we should welcome them. We are a city that welcomes everyone. In case you did not know, uh, even the president knows we are the most unapologetic sanctuary city <laughs> in America. <laughs> we welcome everyone. Sorry, that was a little off track for a second. I just had to get that in there. Um, but if, if we build new places for new people to move into, they don't push out the people who were here already. And so it's so critical that people see that new construction is anti-displacement. And so we are doing all of it. We're doing it aggressively. And we believe that that's why we're starting to see the needle move on some of these indicators. Does anyone else want to speak to tenant protections in their community, some things that may be working in that area? We're having the rent control debate as, as we speak. Call it, call it anti-rent gouging. The anti-rent gouging debate as it speaks. I think a lot of stakeholders in the city are waiting to see what happens at the Capitol with the David Chu bill and whether or not that sets a, a statewide standard. But there's a clear division like there is at the state. And a couple of my colleagues have put forward some interesting ideas, imperfect ideas, like requiring long-term leases, or at least the option of a long-term lease with the rent locked in for, for the longer term. But it, um, I, I think this is going to play out at the state level. And I think my prediction is that there will be a bill that emerges from the state legislature that will be a product of some consensus that will, in some circumstances, allow for at least temporary rent caps and some form of some form of uh, prohibition against unfair e evictions, because it's the issue is not going away, and you don't want to kill the incentive for development. None of us want to do that. I think permanent rent control for everything is a mistake, but that doesn't mean that in limited ways to pr protect people who are otherwise going to end up on the streets that uh, there isn't a place to, to find a balance. I think they'll do that in the legislature. Uh, I have a Prop 13 question, and it's probably my fault. I haven't, this didn't come up before. Um, but uh, as, as folks may know, Prop 13 creates a disincentive for local governments to uh, build uh, housing compared to hotels and office space, particularly for hotels, because they get much more tax revenue than they would from building housing. Uh, and so what do you think um, a potential solution to Prop 13 that would make housing more tax attractive would be? Uh, we'll leave it there for the second, for a second. Well, I, you know, I'd certainly throw out the commercial linkage fee that might be uh, graduated based on the jurisdiction's job housing balance. I think that is a tool that could be used, but that's only one small one that can create some financial incentives, I think, for cities to do the right thing. Uh, ultimately, the solution is going to have to come out of Sacramento, uh, and we need to find a new way of allocating tax revenue. And if you can do it in a way um, that ensures uh, that there is uh, zero net loss in the short term, at least, uh, that would be helpful. But I think fundamentally, the way that public finance is structured at Sacramento is driving the worst decisions right now we're, we're seeing in cities. Uh, Mayor Stewart, you tried to do that, right? I did, point. in the legislature, I did a bill in my early years to require that cities share the growth and sales tax um, across their cities. And as I like to say, my picture was on the post office of every suburban city in, in California when I tried that because they were not very happy about it. But it turned out, this was 2000, it turned out to be a bit prescient because no one thought about Amazon and the fact that the big box yeah. was no longer gonna, gonna predominate. But if I were to make one big constitutional change that would be simpler than not, still difficult, 
would be under the California Constitution, Prop 13 and 218, if a local government wants to raise a special tax, for example, to invest in housing, the more specific you are with the voters, the higher the vote threshold. That's a two-thirds vote. If you're general and you don't tell the voters how you're going to spend the money, it's a majority vote. Sense. I would reverse the two. Uh, and that would be, I think, a big change because it would allow mayors and city council members to really have a more strategic approach to going to the voters yeah. around how to invest their resources if they're willing to raise them. Um, this is on single-family zoning. Do you support uh, ending single-family zoning in your cities? Yes. We're, we're looking at that right now in our general plan review this year. So uh, I think you're going to see some significant changes. Yes. I'm open to the discussion. <laughs> yeah. So what, what do you think, I mean, I know the previous panel was with the um, uh, Council President of Minneapolis, which just, you know, just did this. Mm -hmm. what, what, why do you think this is now a thing? Like, what is it right now where this is an issue that's getting discussed and when it was previously obviously a third rail, right? Like, like why now is this being sort of pushed to the forefront of when we're talking about housing issues? You know, one of the things that interests me about it, um, and certainly when we've done polling about different housing strategies, the one that seems like the lowest hanging fruit is ADUs, which, you know, accessory dwelling units, granny flats, which in some ways is a similar conversation because you can, uh, you know, not allow single family or, you know, allow duplexes, triplexes by right without necessarily changing the envelope of developable space. So the character of the neighborhood um, argument can go down. But as we think about how we are creating cities that are cities for everyone, this idea of getting more economic diversity, particularly into neighborhoods of opportunity neighborhoods with good health outcomes, neighborhoods with access to great parks and good public schools. Um, that is when we're really gonna progress as um, communities. And so this is a really quick way to start creating some housing density, create um, mobility into neighborhoods of opportunity without a lot of expense or governmental imposition. Um, and so that's why it's, I think, very appealing mm -hmm. to me um, it, it, when we, I, I talked about how our uh, affordable, protected affordable housing numbers were a little disappointing in Oakland. I do think it's interesting that half of the new protected affordable units that we've added to our inventory in the last three years have been through purchasing existing housing stock and then placing affordability protections on them. So while, again, I'm all about building more, just look at the cranes across the bay for proof, um, this idea of thinking about how we can better use what we have. We need to Airbnb more things, right? What is, what is some asset that we have that we're underutilizing that we could put to better use? And I think this is a great path to do that. Um, I think time maybe for one more after this, but this might be the last question. So um, we talk a lot about trying to do things to um, build more housing, um, both low income and, and, and market rate. Uh, there's less conversation about um, whether there are things like too many uh, jobs or too many certain kinds of jobs in the Bay Area, because certainly that is uh, driving um, some of the stress that, that, that's here. Do you think there should be conversations about um, uh, perhaps um, doing things that would disincentivize job growth? Come to Sacramento. Stop <laughs> Yeah, I, frankly, I, I think this is a problem that the market solves and it's solving right now because uh, I'm hearing from plenty of employers that they simply can't grow with the housing costs as they are. Uh, they can't find the talent. They can't keep the talent. So I don't think this is something we need to legislate. Um, fair to say uh, we're scaring the heck out of employers right now. And until we fix this housing challenge, um, we won't need to have to legislate it. And, and I don't want to. Um, I think we're seeing that the economy likes a concentration of innovation and talent, um, and that's what is really driving our economy. So I think we are going to continue to see urban centers across America grow quickly and more densely, and we have to accommodate that in a way that's consistent with our values 
and not just send jobs away. That, that seems very counterproductive. You can send them to Stockton. It's not that far. <laughs> <laughs> it's an hour Except away. Your folks are already commuting. It makes sense to me. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked uh, that you want to make sure these folks know before we wrap up? We haven't <laughs> talked much about homelessness, but that would probably be another, uh, another hour. We, we need to put more of an emphasis on, on getting, actually getting people off the streets. In New York City, 4% of the homeless population are unsheltered because they build shelters. And yes, they're not perfect and the throughput to permanent housing may not be as fast in many instances as it should be, but they don't have people sleeping on their riverbanks and on their streets with the public health and public safety issues attendant to that. Whether it's a right to shelter law or an insistence that we focus on actually getting people off the street while not negating our opportunity and obligation to help people find longer term housing and the services they need, that to me is job number one of this new task force that and, we'll be launching next and week. And homelessness is exacerbated by mental street. health issues, by, by substance abuse and public health failings, but at its core, it is a housing issue. And so just re-examine some of the assumptions that you have about who constitutes our unsheltered population. In Oakland, it's more than 80% of people from Oakland. Mm -hmm. These are not hobos catching the train. Um, it, it, and 49% and of our unsheltered residents have income. Yeah. There are some people mm -hmm. that work full time that live yeah. on the street. And so just, it really is a housing problem exacerbated by these other system failures. I think the conversation we should also be having, of course we don't have time for it, but uh, is around innovations we need in financing affordable housing. Yes. Uh, we can't continue to believe we're gonna build enough affordable housing if we need five or six different layers of tax credits and loans and grants uh, to somehow or another pull a project together. The delay is killing folks, it's driving costs up. Uh, the consultants, the attorneys, everything else. Uh, we've gotta find a way to streamline the financing of affordable housing or we're not gonna make our way through it. And I would just end, end by saying, I think this conversation is a policy one, but as all the mayor's refer reference, I would argue it's more probably dominated by a, a values one and a narrative one in terms of when we talk about housing, we're talking about belonging, we're talking about community, and we're talking about a um, legacy of, of exclusion, of wanting some people in and, and some people out, and figuring out what we can do as leaders and as citizens to really have, a conver have the conversation about things that affordable housing is not bad. It just means we want affordable housing for everyone, whether you're a millionaire or whether you're someone who, who, who's working at a, at a millionaire's company. And I think for me, once we do that, we can create the political will to actualize all the good solutions that are, we're on this panel, but also in, in this room. So I don't think the question is, we don't know what to do. I think the question is mustering the political will to do it. And I think it goes to really having the, almost like the conversation we had up here, but having a real conversation about if we are who we say we are as a state, as a community, as a people, what are the actions we're prepared to do to do that? And that it's not, like housing people isn't bad. Like having affordable housing or dense housing isn't bad, it isn't scary. What's bad and scary is the status quo. We have, again, people who are working who are homeless. Like the working homeless is not just a term, it's a reality. And I think that's criminal and unacceptable, particularly for um, the state of California. And I, I just want to illustrate that with one, I think, stunning statistic that I just learned. If you in the Bay Area have a, a couple, each with a $15 an hour job, there is only 5% of this region that that family can afford to live in. 5% of this region is affordable to a couple making $15 an hour. That is broken. And with that, uh, please join me in thanking. <laughs> I need a drink. Our, our <laughs> I need a drink. <laughs> I need a carrot. <laughs> a hard carrot. Good job, Lily. Thanks again for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast. You just listened to Liam Dillon of the LA Times. You can find him on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Matt Levin with CalMatters. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. Again, we'll be back in two weeks with a normal episode of Gimme Shelter. Uh, stay tuned until then.